you had to pick one thing that unites smart cities infrastructure, it's the ability to communicate, right? It is the ability to talk to things, things that generate data. And ultimately, the holy grail is if you can combine those things that generate data into informed information with edge computing and you can make real-time decisions on that data and influence the real world, that is where I think we all want to be. Welcome to The Restless Ones. I'm Jonathan Strickland. As you may know, I've spent the last 15 years covering technology and learning how it works, demystifying everything from massive parallel processing to advanced robotics and everything in between. Yet, it's the conversations with some of the most forward-thinking leaders, those at the intersection of technology and business, that fascinate me the most. I think the tech world has a few categories that can be confusing to the mainstream. Artificial intelligence and machine learning are two notable examples. And I would argue that another is the concept of smart cities. What makes a smart city? Our guest today, Tyler Svitek, has an answer. Tyler has spent his career tackling major challenges through leveraging technology. Early on, he worked on projects to improve the air quality in Colorado, leading programs that developed markets for alternate fuels and other vehicle technologies. He became an energy and transportation administrator in Denver, Colorado, where he worked on projects to reduce transportation emissions. Now, he is working in Colorado Smart Cities Alliance, which aims to bring together parties in the public and private sectors to create solutions to real-world problems. As you'll hear, sometimes those solutions involve sophisticated technology, and sometimes they involve a charmingly simple approach. First, I want to start off, Tyler, by welcoming you to the Restless Ones. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I'm really excited for the conversation. A question I'm always curious about is, when did you first start getting interested in technology in general? So I I really got interested in technology when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life as I was graduating high school. I went to school for environmental studies and political science and and had a passion back in 2008 for trying to figure out how we were going to tackle this climate challenge. And I was also really interested in cars at the time. My uncles, my dad, all big mechanics and have nice vehicles and I have kind of a photographic memory, so I I can tell like every car on the road, like make, model, all that kind of stuff. So my first job out of school was as an intern working on alternative fuel vehicles, the ability for the electrification of transportation to help reduce emissions. And so I got to learn about all of the incredible technologies influencing the transportation space, which turns out are also influencing pretty much everything in a city. So that's when tech became really interesting to me as a tool for solving problems. What actually brought you to the Colorado Smart Cities Alliance? So I, you know, I spent really my whole career in this space, fortunately, and the first roles that I had were in taking a specific technology and trying to apply it to a specific problem. So I worked for the city and county of Denver where I got to develop the strategy and and the goals for reducing transportation emissions. And that was amazing because I got to work with automakers and electric vehicle infrastructure providers to figure out how we were going to accomplish these joint goals together and then work on actually deploying the technology in, in the real world, in our city fleet, in our city streets, and those sorts of things. 
And then I, I got a chance to go to the, the Colorado Department of Transportation where I got to lead and start a program focused on using connected and autonomous vehicle technologies to solve transportation safety issues across the state. And through both of those roles, as well as the five years I spent before with the Department of Energy, I got to understand that partnership is a huge part of deployment of technology. If you have the best tool in the world, if you can't get it to market, if you don't have a supportive environment, if you don't have the partners that you need to deploy those things, which turns out more and more government is one of those partners that are needed, it's really, really hard for those tools to see the light of day. And so the Colorado Smart Cities Alliance was created to try and bake the marketplace for local government innovation. So I thought that this was the perfect place for me to grow what I had done day to day for specific agencies into a nonprofit model that helps lots of different governments solve lots of different problems with lots of different tools. You have touched on so many things that I love to talk about on this podcast, and we'll be touching on them more throughout the conversation. One thing I definitely wanted to get from you, Tyler, is what your definition of a smart city is, because it's a term that we see very frequently. And I think a lot of people have varying ideas on what that actually means. I spend a lot of time talking about this question, and I think it's good. I think the industry is plagued by the desire to define a smart city. I'm actually going to steal a colleague's definition, Emily Royal from the city of San Antonio. You know, she said at a conference recently that smart cities use emerging tech for good, right? And most simplistically, I think that is true. But to do that well, we believe and we define smart cities as an organization by needing a process for applying that technology to solve a specific problem. And that process, we believe, usually involves innovation, meaning you have to do something new. If you're using technology or data to do the same thing, it's not necessarily, in my opinion, that hard to do. There's lots of tech that's involved in everything. So taking a risk and trying something new, there needs to be some sort of technology that is the tool that you are approaching that innovation with and then usually there's some sort of data element to informing a decision that hopefully is generating an innovative or new result. And so that's my best attempt, but I actually, I don't feel the need to define smart cities. I think the diversity of definition is part of the beauty of it. Generally speaking, what are some of the benefits that come along with this creation of smart cities? What, what are some of the outcomes that we're hoping to see through this incorporation of technology into our cities? So I think that there is a misconception that the smartest cities are those that are the most connected or that have the most technology or the most data. Instead, I think that those with the best approaches to solving a problem are the smartest cities. It really depends on the problem that the city chooses to prioritize to apply the process to. Most smart cities target issues important to everyday quality of life, like transportation safety and efficiency, air quality and climate change, public safety, accessibility, digital divide, right? Those are all issues that technology can help solve, and cities are using technology to improve. It's really hard to define the exact benefits that come from the creation of a smart city until you define the problem you're solving. Grand Junction here in Colorado on the Western Slope has very different issues than Denver. They don't have transportation congestion like Denver does. And so it's up to them to prioritize it. 
when I was at the city of Denver, we prioritized two issues we knew were important to quality of life in our city, public health and transportation safety. And for public health, air quality was a, a huge primary concern. We are entering into severe non-attainment for ozone here in the Denver metro region. And it's actually impacting you know, people of color and, and people who have been inequitably served by infrastructure for a very long time. And so we decided we wanted to tackle that issue. Today, the city has a robust program using 40 IoT air quality sensors to provide real-time hyper-local air pollution information to the public so that they can take informed actions on how to protect themselves and also advocate for better air quality and different infrastructure. They've also deployed on the transportation side technologies that can detect and communicate vulnerable road users and intersections and extend traffic light timing in real time to allow for people to cross. They're also using micromobility data to inform where the safest and least safe parts of their infrastructure are in order to improve them. And so that's one example how the everyday person would benefit from those things understanding if it's safe to breathe and go for a run, understanding if it's safe to cross the intersection. Those are very real tangible things that in the case of Denver, they chose to prioritize. And speaking of benefits, I also wanted to know what the impact of smart city strategies are on local economies and businesses. Sure. The impact of of smart cities on local economies and businesses is significant, right? The technologies of today are shaping the infrastructure of tomorrow. And infrastructure quality is essential to business and to local economies. You know, the technologies themselves have enormous consequences for individual people, like who has access to the fastest internet? Where are electric vehicle chargers located and the cleaner air that they can provide to the local community? Where do people have convenient, affordable access to transportation? Those are all very real things that technologies are influencing where those will be available tomorrow. And those technologies are also driving economic growth, right? And many of the biggest tech companies that I'm sure you've had on this podcast are heavily dependent on access to government in some way. 5G providers need to densify their infrastructure. Micromobility companies need access to safely ride in the city right-of-way. Rideshare companies need access to streets and curb space. And, you know, electric vehicle companies need adequate connection to the electricity grid and charging areas. And so this impact trickles all the way down the supply chain. Makers of chips have a huge interest in smart cities because the products they make are going to go into the products that are operated on 5G and go into cars. And so I don't think governments understand the important role that they have to play in seeding the future of economic growth and infrastructure just by having an opportunity to partner and test and be good partners. Because if they aren't, it's gonna happen to them. And if they are, they have a chance to influence what tomorrow's infrastructure looks like. And one of the technologies you just mentioned, obviously one of the ones that we are really excited about on this podcast, the 5G connectivity technology. I foresee that as being a pretty key component to a lot of smart city strategies moving forward. The ability to have fiber connectivity, but not be tethered to fiber and to have high bandwidth, low latency that can enable so many other different technologies. Do you see 5G as being one of those sort of foundational technologies for for smart city strategies moving forward? I think it absolutely could be. 
if there was a robust and equitable displacement of a true 5G network that has low, mid, high spectrum, edge computing, you know, all of the things that it takes to actually enable the latency, the densification of infrastructure that can be enabled, yes, that would be transformative, right? We are in the process of trying to launch our own 5G network downtown that would be a private, fully built out 5G network for the testing and development of new products and the support of startup companies so that we could give access to what that actual 5G network will be five, 10 years from now and give cities access to it as well to understand the benefits so that the fiber investments cities are making today are informed by, you know, well, maybe you won't need fiber five, 10 years from now. I assume then that connectivity in general obviously becomes like the the glue that holds together these various technologies to enable the solutions that we expect for these cities of the future. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you had to pick one thing that unites smart cities infrastructure, it's the ability to communicate, right? It is the ability to talk to things, things that generate data. And ultimately, the holy grail is if you can combine those things that generate data into informed information with edge computing and you can make real-time decisions on that data and influence the real world, that is where I think we all want to be. Conventional thinking says you have to pay more to get more. I want the world. But T-Mobile for Business uses unconventional thinking to deliver premium benefits for better ROI. From customized 5G solutions to 360 support, we help you reach your business goals right now. I want it now. Innovating to improve business today and tomorrow. That's unconventional thinking from T-Mobile for Business. Capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. One of the things I really wanted to talk to you about was automated vehicles. So I'm curious to hear from you, one, What's kind of the the state of affairs on automated vehicles? Where do you kind of assess where we are on that scale? And two, what are your thoughts about how automated vehicles are going to play a role in our lives? Do you think that that's going to be more of a sort of a public transit kind of mode and less of a privately owned vehicle? I certainly hope that automation comes to public transit before it comes to individual garages. The industry talks about safety as as the main benefit of autonomy, maybe efficiency. There are potential benefits there, but in my opinion, one of the biggest benefits to automation of public transit is the ability to lower the cost of transportation and to provide it to more people and to do so in a shared way because we can't provide more transportation to more people on the same infrastructure if we don't do it more efficiently. The only way to do that is to connect to an existing transportation system that moves people and goods more efficiently than individual vehicles. The leaders in the autonomous vehicle space are really in two areas right now. One is in trucking, and that is probably the first place that people will really interact with highly automated vehicles. They may not even know it. The truck next to them, you know, is likely driving itself for at least parts of the route or maybe even entire sections. And then robo-taxis. That model, eventually, if it's profitable, public transportation is definitely something that they talk about wanting to solve. 
but I see a lot of individual people hiring their individual vehicle to come and pick them up and going to wherever they want. And in that case, you're not moving two people, you're moving one person. And in a lot of cases, you're going to have vehicles driving around that have zero occupants in them at all. And so then what is the point of infrastructure to, to move vehicles and not people? And so a lot of the work we've been doing is trying to solve the barriers to using today's highly automated vehicles in a transit or a micro transit environment. When you're looking at these solutions and you're trying to get buy-in from various parties to look at possibilities of how you can use these technologies to do things like support public transportation, what are those conversations like? I mean, are they remarkably different when you're talking to say the private sector versus a city government agency? Absolutely. Those conversations are always different. To do it right, to understand the problem, and to find a way to co-develop the solution takes time. It takes investment of resources. And it's not easy. And both the public and the private sector are not used to doing those things together. What we're trying to do is create more of a bridge so that before you're developing that scooter and throwing it on our streets, like let's have a conversation about how we could do that in the most beneficial way for both of us. Let's co-develop a program together and then we'll maybe give you exclusive access to our right-of-way because you worked with us in order to do this right. Well, can you tell me a little bit about some of your success stories? I would love to hear about some projects that kind of stand as a model toward finding that collaborative process and finding implementations that make a real difference. Sure. Yeah, I would love to. We've been around for about five years as a nonprofit organization, and we've been working for five years to find that model that can work. And, you know, we have a couple of success stories for sure. One is cities have a tremendous desire to A, decarbonize the transportation sector, but also B, lower the cost of housing and lower the cost of energy just generally to buildings. And there's a technology called vehicle to grid or the ability for a vehicle to charge a building or the grid as opposed to the grid charging just the vehicle. And for a long time, the technology didn't exist in order for this to really happen. About two years ago, we were approached by a company called Fermata Energy that has the first UL-approved bi-directional DC fast charger. And they were looking for partners to really test this with. And in exchange for a free charger, if the jurisdiction paid for the install, then they could be a, a beta testing partner. And, and we were able to find two partners here with Fermata to do that testing. And now we're finding that this technology with one charger and one vehicle can shave $300 a month off of the average electricity bill for a commercial building, which is massive. Imagine if you had five or 10 of those chargers with vehicles plugged in at the right time of day. And so we're using that to do analysis on what that would mean for the whole grid if we were to, to robustly deploy that and avoid sinking a bunch of money into stationary battery storage. So that's one. I would say one of our, our favorite models that we found is, you know, instead of just working with one city, why not work with a bunch and find the city with the, the best problem to partner the solutions with? And so we run this annual innovation challenge where we get multiple governments. This year we have about 10. These are cities, counties, state agencies, and they all have a problem. Like how do we improve the resilience of our infrastructure or how do we improve the safety of our transportation system? 
And we invite ideas from all over the world from different companies of how they could solve that problem with technology and data. And then we facilitate the matchmaking between the jurisdiction and those companies. And it streamlines the whole process. If there's a cost to the solution, it enables the jurisdiction to buy it directly. And we've generated a lot of our projects through that process. Excellent. So I assume that data collection and analysis must play a crucial role in any strategy. And the fact that we're in an era now where the ability to collect and analyze data at enormous scale has to be a huge benefit as well. Is that correct? Yes. Data is a part of our future, right? It is absolutely a resource. And just like infrastructure is you know, a physical thing that cities manage and have to, to use in order to benefit the public, data is becoming a part of that infrastructure, a digital infrastructure. But data is much different <laughs> than a physical asset. And it requires new sorts of digital infrastructure to manage well. And most cities haven't figured it out quite yet. A lot of companies have, but they're using their data for different means, how to figure out which markets are best and and how to push products. Governments need to use it for a very different reason to solve a, a real world problem, right? And unfortunately, governments have a lot of data. One of our, our partners always says we're both drowning in data and suffocating without it, meaning They have so much data already at their fingertips. They just don't have the platforms to activate that data and to get information from it. Most systems don't talk to each other. And so they can't use the data they have. And then there's a lot of data they don't have, right? Denver didn't have local air quality information. They had to go out and get it and use technology to get it and bring it to the people. One anecdote I'd love to share to really bring this all home, one of our partners is a a LiDAR sensor manufacturer. And they're working with a city and the city had this issue where there's a really dangerous intersection, but they didn't know why it was dangerous. So they installed this LIDAR sensor and were able to identify near miss accidents with pedestrians or with other cars. And they could narrow down the exact time of day and they were all happening at the same time of day. And so they went out there at this time of day and turns out the sun glare was blinding people and they couldn't see it. And so the solution was not the LIDAR, but was to plant trees in front of where the sun is at that time of day and dramatically improve the issue. And so that type of data is what can be available to make cities proactive in solving a problem before it gets someone killed. I'm glad that that was a positive example of a root kit being installed. That's a terrible (laughs) tech joke. But, but, <laughs> but getting, getting more serious and more to the point about this, I think that you've brought up some really interesting perspectives. I imagine a lot of governments have data in silos and they're probably based on a lot of legacy systems because governments typically don't have an aggressive schedule to maintain and update systems. They'll rely on a system for as long as they possibly can until something goes wrong. And so... It's not as simple as saying the information's out there. Let's just make use of it. So I imagine one part of strategies has to be how can we work with governments to come up with processes where we can harness this information that we know we have, but yet do it in a way that also makes us good stewards of information. Clearly, when you're talking about government, information security should be very front of mind and to be able to 
be a trustworthy guardian of information would, I think, be absolutely critical. So I feel like part of the collaboration really is to work almost like a consultant with governments to help judge what are the right pathways forward to take advantage of this information you have in the most responsible way possible. Yeah. Jurisdictions need to really figure out what is the role of government owning certain solutions and the data that come from them versus partnering and giving access to a a private partner to own and operate because governments are limited on their capacity and their understanding on their funding. Companies are not. And you also have data that's only useful when it's aggregated outside of the scale of the jurisdiction. Air quality is one example of that. When I was at CDOT, we had a, a very large contract with Panasonic to develop a software as a service platform that could make sense of the connected vehicle data that we wanted to collect from the roadway because we're not software developers. We can't develop that. So to make use of the technology, we had to work with them. And so many DOTs across the country are trying to do it on their own. They're trying to use interns and contractors to piecemeal together the software that can save people's lives. But I think what a lot of them are finding is that it's really hard to maintain a piece of software like the private sector does if there's not a profit motive to do it. That's a huge part of the smart cities industry's complexity is what's the role for government? What's the role for the private sector? There has to be an opportunity to monetize certain data because without it, we're never going to get to the scale of the infrastructure required to really tackle the issue itself. Right. How can you enter into a partnership with the private sector knowing that the whole goal of the private sector is to monetize something in order to return value to stakeholders, whether it's privately held or publicly held, versus trying to solve actual civil problems in a city? You know, we've talked a bit about a real world example, and I love it. The real world example of finding this intersection and finding the actual root cause of these traffic accidents and learning that the solution wasn't technology. It was literally providing shade so that sunlight was not blinding drivers. I think that's a great wake up call to people who are diehard tech fans like myself, that sometimes there are other approaches that are far more effective. Can you give us any other examples of how smart city approaches are going to have a positive impact on, say, civilian life? I struggle with this question only because there are so many examples, and that's part of the challenge of of the space. I think it's, is it one in five people have some sort of disability in the United States? And just navigating cities, getting from A to B if you're in a wheelchair or if you're blind or visually impaired is really difficult. So we've done some work with accessibility tech companies who there are so many ways that technology can enable better sight or better navigation of city environments, whether you're mapping the conditions of sidewalks to get to and from A to B, or in one case, we've worked with a technology to develop a navigation system for indoor spaces for the blind and visually impaired. So if you want to go to the museum or if you want to go to the library, you can still experience that space by knowing exactly where you are to the centimeter and knowing what's around you and describing that environment to you as you walk through it. And so that's one way that whether you're able-bodied 
or if you're young or you're old, you know, there's a lot of technologies that can help the ease of access in around cities that can help people in a lot of ways. But that's just one that I, I like to highlight because it's one that people don't think about very often. Right. I think of augmented reality as any technology that enhances the experience of you being in a physical place. And that can include things like audio cues and even tactile feedback, haptic feedback, that if you take that narrow view of what augmented reality is and you're just thinking, oh, that's smart glasses, you're really not tapping into the potential of that concept, not just technology. That's just the manifestation of the concept, but the actual concept of enhancing the area around you in some way, whether that might be for entertainment purposes, educational, navigation, the applications are limitless. Yeah, there are so many cool ways you can use augmented reality, but we've got a couple of companies, one that, that uses it to visualize new development. So if you're a citizen and you're concerned about the new development happening across the street, you can actually visualize it in real life to see what it would look like and provide your feedback that way. There's lots of very tangible ways that governments or utilities can use these technologies if they're focused on trying to do it, right? And I think that's the key is so many governments are just focused on providing the services the way they are today. It takes purposeful and intentional action and process to do it differently. Before saying goodbye to Tyler, I had to ask him one more thing. What is a project you personally are very excited about? Well, our new 5G project, really, really excited about building a 5G network that we can use to test and develop products. We're going to be targeting startups and entrepreneurs that are owned or hire people of color, indigenous women, people that are underrepresented, including people with disabilities, so that they have access to infrastructure to do testing, to understand these technologies and to grow here in Colorado. So we're gonna be beginning that work later this year and are excited to start welcoming our first companies hopefully in Q1 of next year. And that'll really get us into this economic development space where I think a lot of cities have an interest in right being the home for a growing company and also a way for us to ensure that these solutions that are influencing our infrastructure of tomorrow are being built by the people that have been left behind by the infrastructure of today. Excellent answer. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really informative and, and fun conversation for me. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for digging into this topic with me and I hope your listeners enjoy it. Tyler Svitek opened my eyes when it comes to smart cities. He has a realistic perspective on what it takes to incorporate technological solutions into city infrastructure. Any effort to do so is going to require a lot of collaboration and innovation. The problems aren't necessarily simple, and getting all parties on the same page can be hard too. But the need for those solutions is apparent, and the payoff of implementing them is incalculable. I think of it as empowering citizens who then contribute to society, at which point everyone benefits. I'm excited to learn more about the 5G network Tyler's team intends to build as a testing ground for all sorts of other technologies. I expect that Foundation of Connectivity will help produce some amazing products. 
Some of those will likely become commercial products, perhaps ones that don't actually have a real place in smart city applications. Others might exclusively be useful for the maintenance and operation of a city. As we've seen many times throughout this series, it's connectivity that transforms limited technologies into powerful tools. Having the ability to channel large amounts of data with negligible delay is a real game changer. I hope that Tyler Svitek and his team are able to shepherd new technologies into the smart city space that will ultimately make life better for citizens. Thanks again to Tyler for joining the show and sharing his experience and mission. Be sure to tune in to future episodes of The Restless Ones, where I'll speak with other leaders in the tech space to see what lessons they've learned and their approach to leadership. I'll see you then. T-Mobile for Business knows companies want more than a one-size-fits-all approach to support. I want the world. So we provide 360 support customized to your business from discovery through post-deployment. You'll get a dedicated account team and expertise from solutions engineers and industry advisors already right now. I want it now. 360 support that's customized for your success. That's unconventional thinking from T-Mobile for Business. 